This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Revolutionary Mathematics, Artificial Intelligence, Statistics, and the Logic of Capitalism by Justin Jock. Our finances, politics, media, opportunities, information, shopping, and knowledge production are mediated through algorithms and their statistical approaches to knowledge. Increasingly, these methods form the organizational backbone of contemporary capitalism. Revolutionary mathematics traces this revolution in statistics and probability that has quietly underwritten the explosion of machine learning, big data, and predictive algorithms that now decide many aspects of our lives. This book provides a new and unique perspective on the dangers of allowing artificial intelligence and big data to manage society. It is essential reading for those who want to understand the underlying ideological and philosophical changes that have fueled the rise of algorithms and convinced so many to blindly trust their outputs, reshaping our current political and economic situation. Revolutionary Mathematics by Justin Jacques. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today is part two of my two-part interview with sociologist Ho Fung Hung, the author of the book The China Boom, Why China Will Not Rule the World, and out just now, Clash of Empires, From Chimerica to the New Cold War. In today's episode, we discuss the 2008 financial crisis, how China's response to that crisis deepened global and domestic economic imbalances and contributed to the heightening of geopolitical conflict, and then also this current situation, including the impact of the crises surrounding Russia's invasion and what that all means for the U.S.-China rivalry. That and a whole lot more including why economic redistribution at home in both China and the U.S. is key to resolving core contradictions in the global economy and key to avoiding conflict increasing to the point of possible war. I recommend that you first listen to episode one before you listen to this one if you have not done so already. We discussed Chinese political economic history from the 18th century to 2008, particularly why capitalism did take off in England and later elsewhere, but did not take off in China in the late 18th or the 19th and early 20th centuries, and then how Maoist policy laid the groundwork for China's ultimate capitalist takeoff and spectacular boom. Part one was a really good interview, so listen to it first if you haven't yet. I'll keep this brief, but I know a lot of you are sitting there thinking, damn, I really should support The Dig at patreon.com slash The Dig, but you keep forgetting to, or keep meaning to do so some other time. I've been on the other end of these sorts of audio solicitations, so I feel you. But if that is you, I promise it'll only take a couple minutes to make a contribution. The alternative to me making all these requests would be to paywall episodes, which we are staunchly against doing. So please, do your part, and we'll get you our weekly newsletter, and if you contribute $10 a month or more, a gift in the mail, a book or books, a tote bag, or a coffee mug. 
That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Also, please take a quick minute to rate and review the pod. We have 980 ratings on Apple Podcasts. Please rate and review us so we can get to an even 1,000. Okay, here's the second part of my two-part interview with Ho Fung Hung, a professor in political economy at the John Hopkins University. He's the author of Protest with Chinese Characteristics, The China Boom, City on the Edge, Hong Kong under Chinese Rule, and Out Just Now, Clash of Empires, From Chimerica to the New Cold War. His writings also appear in Catalyst, Jacobin, New Left Review, and Spectre. The China boom and the rise of East Asia more generally played this specific role in the history of the world system, you write, as a response to the crisis that hit advanced capitalist countries in the 1970s. What was the nature of that crisis and what role did the rise of East Asia in general and then later China in particular play in helping to provisionally resolve it? And then what about the resolution made it only provisional? Yeah, the, the 1970s, the advanced capitalist countries, mostly U.S. and also Europe as well, uh, encountered the, a prolonged crisis. And there are the multiple facets of the crisis, but primarily the crisis is rooted at a kind of a falling rate of profits, if you use a Marxian language. and But uh, even mainstream e- economics, they have their version of it is like falling productivity, uh, falling profitability, profitability of firms. So, so among these uh, advanced countries, that uh, companies no longer as profitable as um, in the so-called golden age of post-war capitalism in the 1950s and 60s. There's many reasons of it, definitely, and one is the intensifying competition, uh, because uh, after the Second World War. After all the destructions, so there's a kind of a lack in supply uh, for all kind of demands. So whatever you make, uh, vehicle, construction machine, there's a huge demand there, and it is very profitable. But after Japan and Europe reconstructed from the war and they developed very productive machines, then the capitalist market become more competitive. And another reason is this uh, militancy of the labors organized laborers in the developed world and then they uh, successfully uh, press for higher wage and, and wage level that uh, grow at least as fast as inflation or sometimes faster than inflation. So this competitiveness of the capital system and uh, successful the demand or the request for higher wage from the organized labor create a profit squeeze on the enterprises in uh, advanced capitalist countries, uh, so they are scrambling to find solution to revive their profits, and they try many different things. And some move to finance uh, instead of production, uh, but some who stay in production discover offshoring or industrial uh, relocation to lower wage countries. Uh, initially, it was the East Asian tigers that caught in a kind of a geopolitical sweet spot at the height of the Vietnam War and the height of the Cold War. So Japan and the four tigers, including South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore, that is the frontier state of the capitalist world against an expanding, uh, seemingly quite successful socialist bloc. 
enjoy free access to the U.S. and European markets、uh, in terms of their manufactured products. So the many the manufacturers or retailers in the developed world in the global of、uh, took this advantage、uh, to move the productions、uh, to these East Asian states, and then it is、uh, the context in which these、uh, East Asian Economies became very successful export-oriented industrializing economies, mobilizing the low-cost labor to produce goods for the developed world market.、Uh, so it is one of the solution of this crisis, and the consequence of it uh, was uh, to help、uh, facilitate the rise of the East Asian tigers. China played a major role in the global recovery from the 2008 financial crisis, but you write that it also. Was a major cause of that crisis. How did the provisional resolution of the crisis of the 1970s create the imbalances that ultimately paved the way for the 2008 crash? Definitely, that the provisional solution to the crisis in the 70s, as many see that actually it is a crisis that actually never went away. If you look at the profit rate of、um, the major advanced capitalist economies. It never recovered to the 1950s and 1960s level. So in the 1970s, profit rates of major developed economies fall, and or in some mainstream economic language, that the productivity, industrial productivity, manufacturing productivity, fell in the 1970s. It never recovered to the 50s and 60s level. And what they sought as a temporary solution is to move to this low cost, low wage. Region to suppress the costs of manufacturing so that the profit margin can remain, uh, can 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 be revived,、uh, but at the same time it create a little source of a longer term、uh, imbalance in the global economy because、uh, the original idea of this globalization and opening up of these、uh, global South countries, Asian tigers and China later on and Southeast Asia, is that they not only became a source. Of low-cost manufacturers, but they eventually. The assumption is that they eventually will become a kind of a little frontier of market, a、uh, little frontier of demands、uh, for manufactured products. So to, uh, help uh, to resolve the overproduction crisis, overaccumulation crisis that it was the root cause of the 1970s crisis. But in the end, that these、um, Thai, Asian tigers in China and Southeast Asia, that their policy was to promote production. And repress consumption, and then promote exports. So in the end, in at the aggregate level, the the whole world economy, the the problem of overproduction and overaccumulation actually got worsened、uh, because of entering of、uh, the productive capacity of、uh, Asia and China and large part of the global south. So it was、uh, the underlying the, the imbalance、uh, that ultimately. Uh, led actually led to the series of financial crises from the peso crisis in 1994, the Asian financial crisis 97, 98, and a series of crises in Turkey, Russia, Argentina at the turn of the new millennium. And the 2008 financial crisis is actually the the latest rung of the series of financial crises that got more attention and more serious because the epicenter is no longer in Mexico and. Malaysia, Thailand, and Argentina, and places far away, but right at Wall Street.、Uh, so it is a kind of a series of a long crisis, and and the underlying the structural imbalance that led to this series of crises, including the 2008 crisis, was the imbalance between supply and demand in the global economy. That is the overproduction and overaccumulation issues. China's response to the 2008 financial crisis had major 
repercussions for its economy. It was a, this provisional resolution that exacerbated problems, particularly with regard to this repression of domestic consumption and its related reliance on exports and debt-fueled investment to maintain high growth rates. You write, quote, When China's export-led boom faltered during the global financial crisis in 2008, the Chinese government responded by unleashing an aggressive stimulus program that successfully fostered a strong economic recovery driven by debt-financed fixed-asset investment. The weakening of the export engine and the reckless investment expansion of the state sector financed by state banks during the 2009-10 recovery created a mammoth debt bubble that was no longer matched by the growth in the foreign exchange reserve. Between 2008 and late 2017, outstanding debt in China soared from 148% of GDP to over 250%. The surge of loans during the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic pushed the share to more than 330%. How does the repression of domestic wages and consumption drive or relate to this problem of overinvestment and redundant production capacity and infrastructure? And then how did that all accelerate? Why did that all accelerate after 2008? Yeah. In the end, it, uh, the fundamental imbalance that led to the crisis is the overproduction and overaccumulation. And right at the, uh, 2000, the beginning of the 2008 global financial crisis, actually there is a uh, policy discussion within China and some policy advisors of the government and some scholars, they have been talking about this issue of um, overproduction, overcapacity, excessive capacity as under, and, and the debt bubble as, as an underlying problem that, that will e- eventually haunt the Chinese economy. So they advocate China responds to the crisis by boosting domestic private household consumption. Uh, for example, there's a proposal in which some advocate the government giving consumption voucher to peasants to buy computers, to buy the electrical appliances. Uh, so it will boost demand uh, when the global demand for the export plummet. Uh, so if they had gone on to this path, that would have been very helpful and in uh, resolving the fundamental imbalance uh, of the global economy that helped precipitate the 2008 global financial crisis, but because of the political and institution uh, structure of China didn't favor this kind of proposal uh, because globally it is institutionally representing the interests of peasant consumers. So this kind of a consumption boosting response to the crisis uh, was shut down. And in the end, the response of the Chinese government to the crisis is to open the floodgate of state bank lending to local government and to state enterprises and all kind of um, investment-oriented enterprises to borrow the money, easy money, uh, from the state bank like crazy to build stuffs. Uh, so it is a kind of an alternative investment in infrastructures and, and new plants, new factories and, and, and new railroad. And then, of course, the high-speed rail is the much talk about uh, example of this response. Uh, so this kind of response, of course, and create a instant rebound and strong rebound of China and many countries that export commodities to China. So in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, places like Brazil and Zambia and uh, Australia that export a lot of commodities to China didn't uh, feel the heat of the global financial crisis because the Chinese re- rebound helped them a lot. Because this kind of investment-led rebound 
create new demand when they are building the stuff. They create new demand for steel, for commodities, for all kind of things. And the workers employed in the construction itself uh, also become a consumer of some kind. But the problem of this kind of uh, investment-driven uh, rebound is that after the things are built, if the and and if you have a uh, over supply of these infrastructures and 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 factories uh, that were built, after they were built, they were a lot profitable. Uh, so as the units, maybe local government, maybe state-owned enterprise who borrow to build, and after the things are built and they are a lot profitable, so they have a problem of not being able to repay the loan that they borrow to build, and then it becomes uh, excess capacity that as uh, the high-speed rail is heralded by many as a success story of China, definitely it is in terms of technology and efficiency. Uh, but the profitable lines uh, of the high-speed rail is not many. Uh, many lines are not profitable. So uh, after 2009 and 2010, the strong rebound, you see the Chinese economy start to slow down drastically continue to slow down to, to a standstill because uh, they run out of things to build and they have just too much steel mill and they have too much coal plant and they have too much uh, real estate apartments, uh, have low customers to buy. And and so the debt uh, accumulated through this kind of uh, investment boom uh, still there. And then uh, and the, again, that they become addicted to debt. Uh, because when they're heavily indebted, they don't want to default and the government doesn't want them to default on the debt. So the government allow them to borrow again, again, and to, to roll over the old debt, to use the new loan to cover the old loan. And then the debt just keeps slow-balling uh, until the recently uh, we, we have the reckoning in the form of these uh, real estate companies getting the real trouble. Uh, so that this kind of a debt addiction is uh, just like drug addiction that that you every time you have a rebound uh, because of the debt uh, fueled investment, then you have a temporary uh, boost in the economic activities and GDP. But after that, that you uh, uh, go to a kind of a stagnation or even contraction in production, and then the government get worried and get a stronger dose of uh, debt to stimulate the economy again. And each time they lead a stronger dose of debt, and the effect becomes smaller and smaller, so it's just like an addiction. And now that uh, China is very finding very difficult to come out of this addiction, so it is slowdown and then uh, acceleration of accumulation of debt is the two things that define the Chinese economy and its problems uh, after the 2008 uh, rebound. Yeah, we're- Remarkably, in recently, the U.S. growth rate has at times briefly surpassed China's rate, which is incredible. Yes. And so is China then heading to the very sort of overproduction crisis that when it hit advanced capitalist countries in the 1970s accelerated East Asia's rise in the first place? Are, Are these problems that we're seeing in recent years with the Chinese real estate market leading us to what we've seen in recent days, laying the groundwork for what we've seen in recent days in the wake of the Russian invasion and with renewed anti-COVID lockdowns in key export production regions, along, of course, with this massive outbreak in Hong Kong, led us led us to what has now become serious financial turmoil in the Chinese markets that could become a full-blown crisis. Where are things heading now? The nature of the Chinese crisis is um, more comparable to the long, brewing slowdown in crisis in Japan since the 1990s more than the Asian financial crisis in 97, 98. And people talking about, 
acquired China is heading toward crisis, and and this crisis imaginary always dictated by this sudden spectacular explosion of the system, like the two thousand eight in Wall Street and the Euro crisis in two thousand eight two thousand nine and the Asian financial crisis ninety seven ninety eight. Uh, but China, I don't think China can easily go into this kind of sudden, spectacular explosion of uh, or collapse of the financial market. And China is close to that in 2015. Ironically, the the same time when the China boom was out, uh, 2015, China has a massive devaluation and the collapse of the stock market uh, and a capital flight actually. But uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party still have a control, strong hand. In controlling the financial system, they just stop it. Uh, basically, it, uh, we adopt a lot of draconian measure to just stop people from taking money out of China, and then to to shut down the trading of some companies that is uh, falling too much, and then send the work team from the Communist Party to the actually to the stock exchange to to oversee the operation. So they use this administrative means to prevent it from becoming. Financial collapse, but it was close. Uh, but even without that, China won't get close to this nineteen ninety seven Asian financial crisis because, for one thing, even though Chinese uh, foreign exchange reserve has stopped growing as fast as it uh, used to be in the two thousands, uh, but it stopped growing. Uh, but the uh, local currency supply and debt is still growing, so there is a capital flight pressure, but uh, it still have a substantial amount of um, uh, foreign exchange reserve, so it won't have a kind of a currency explosion or financial market explosion like in Mexico in 1994 and uh, Asia, like South Korea and Malaysia, Thailand in, in 1997, but it will be more like Japan, that is the debt continue to accumulate and then the economy become less energetic, less momentum of growth. And the government refused to let uh, the unprofitable and indebted company to go bust, so they keep bail them out uh, and become zombie company. So it is what happened in Japan after the 1990s and in 2000s and so on and so forth. So uh, uh, China is more like that. It is a lot of spectacular blow up of the system uh, or drastic blow up of the system, but the kind of a long stagnation and long slowdown, simmering, crisis, uh, uh, they just keep buying time, but at the same time prolonging the crisis. And to some extent, this is a more difficult crisis to deal with because you have a path dependence. You don't want to take the cost of drastic uh, adjustment uh, and then you just delay the problem uh, without resolution. And in such cases of spectacular blow up of the system, like 2008 in US and uh, 1997 in, in South Korea and Malaysia and this spectacular uh, explosion uh, lead to drastic readjustments of course the neoliberal kind of adjustment in many cases in which actually that uh, they rebound uh, as fast as they collapse but for this kind of Japan or China style long slowdown it is uh, getting deeper and deeper more and more addicted to debt and then it's more difficult to take out and definitely and the Chinese government has been scratching their head and trying all kind of method to try to find a new source of expansion to get rid of uh, this kind of a long uh, slowdown. And one is the technological, accelerated technological upgrading that represented in the Made in China 2025. And also uh, the Belt and Road is another uh, way that uh, a policy that China want to uh, use to get over the uh, long slowdown through capital export. It was these post-2008 domestic economic crises, you write, that also spurred the Chinese state to concentrate 
political power under Xi, which then in turn made the U.S. all the more hostile to China, all while repeated crises in the United States emboldened a Chinese state that increasingly saw the U.S. as in terminal decline. What? How did 2008 accelerate this shift towards authoritarian rule? Yeah, first of all, the 2008, uh, China suddenly find that the U.S. Uh, economic model is not invisible and it is very vulnerable. And at that time in China and elsewhere in the world, there's a lot of talk about the collapse of the U.S. dollar hegemony in the world and a collapse of the U.S. financial system that U.S. can never recover from that. And, and so there's a lot of talk and then it, the perception is is formed in many people's heads uh, in China. At least among the Chinese leader, and actually the the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party uh, did have study group to to study this like rise and fall of great power and such and such, and then they conclude that the U.S. is in terminal decline and U.S. will never recover economically and in terms of its uh, international status. So it is the kind of a reckoning or perception that is formed and stuck in the Chinese leader head ever since then, even though. Economically, the, the U.S. did uh, recover from the crisis and, and the U.S. dollar hegemony globally didn't collapse and actually was strengthened after the crisis. It was the euro that was in, in, in trouble. But once the conception is formed that U.S. was in terminal decline and then that it is difficult to, to, to undo, so it is still in the, the perception of the Chinese leader, particularly Xi, who think that U.S. is substantially weakened since 2008. It is uh, China chance to take on the U.S. and China can afford uh, to be more aggressive. And at the same time, it is an economic necessity that with the uh, 2008 global financial crisis and then the 2009-2010, China rebound. And after China rebound, taper off and, and lost momentum and the economy entered into a uh, stagnation, if not outright uh, contraction mode, that many troubled and heavily indebted uh, Chinese companies uh, with the state backing. So their strategy of survival is, of course, to eat up the market share of foreign companies in China. Uh, because when the pie is expanding, everybody can expand their slide uh, without jeopardizing one another's uh, share, then everybody is a win-win situation when the pie is expanding. But when the pie ceases to expand uh, or even contract, so your your it becomes a zero sum game and, and and cannibalism of some kind that if you want to expand your profits and your market share you have to eat up uh, the market share and profit of your opponent, and then it turns out that many dominant uh, enterprise in China they are either uh, outright stay owned it or even they are if they are private enterprise like this real estate markets and, and and tech company they have state backings and they have. Uh, uh, insider connections in the party state, so they they become very aggressive in uh, helped by the Chinese regulator and and, and the Chinese state uh, to eat up the market share of the foreign investors in 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 China and in many cases also trying to uh, appropriate technological advantage and edge of the of foreign partners and foreign competitors. Again, facilitated by the state. And then, so this competition between foreign companies, especially U.S. companies and Chinese companies within China, the Chinese market became so intensified 
So much so that many U.S. Uh, corporations uh, later we find out that they have been complaining to the U.S. government uh, to do something to help them to help their situation in the Chinese market. They uh, uh, complain that they are unfairly targeted and squeezed by their uh, Chinese counterpart, sometimes even their partners. Uh, so it is the economic underlying uh, force that uh, led to the deterioration of U.S.-China relations. It was very much reflected for the first time when uh, the then Chinese President Hu Jintao visiting the White House in the U.S. in 2011, uh, that uh, President Obama, this for the first time, uh, told uh, President Hu Jintao that we have a problem, that uh, our companies, U.S. companies in China is treated unfairly, they complain about intellectual property theft and things like that. So uh, telling uh, Wu Jintou, you have better fix it. So it is the first time in open that uh, a U.S. president mentioned this kind of problem that uh, many U.S. corporations have been complaining behind closed door uh, about the Chinese situation. And China's cap increasing capital exports abroad after 2008 also increased tensions with both the U.S. government and U.S. corporations. Definitely. That uh, first they complain about the situation in the Chinese market. It is reflected in many like member surveys of the American Chamber of Commerce in China. And later on, they complain take to the third market. That is uh, mostly developing countries' market. Uh, because one remedy uh, or attempt the remedy of the Chinese government to rescue the profit profit force of many Chinese enterprises is to create, help them create little demand in overseas market. Uh, and it is the background of the Bell and Road project that is uh, Chinese government and Chinese state bank uh, lend money to developing countries in Asia, Pakistan and Kazakhstan and Sri Lanka and all the way to the Middle East and, and, and even Europe. And actually, Ukraine is is the is one of these uh, barren world countries. So these Chinese uh, state entities and state bank lend money to them. And then what people find out is that um, the traditional IMF and World Bank loans uh, or Asian development loans to developing countries, they might have some policy uh, strength attached that, that if you borrow the loan from the IMF, you need to pursue certain kind of liberal policy. Chinese loan doesn't have this kind of a policy uh, precondition for this loan, but they have a procurement precondition, as people now find out, that if you borrow money from from Chinese entities, uh, one condition is that you need to use the money to hire Chinese company and to use Chinese materials and Chinese products to build your infrastructure that you borrow money for, uh, a stadium, a railroad, and highway, and uh, port facilities, and so on and so forth. So it is a very explicit uh, external kind of uh, stimulus uh, that the Chinese bank uh, lend money to foreign countries in the developing world to create demand in this country for uh, Chinese uh, overly supplied uh, steel and uh, high-speed rail train, uh, coal plants, and coal plant is one item that uh, Bell and Road uh, is engaged in, and the Chinese bank lend money to developing countries to Build coal plant by Chinese contractors using Chinese materials. So they, it is this export of um, of excess capacity to developing countries create a competitive pressure for many American companies and European and Japanese companies uh, in these developing countries. One very interesting example is actually uh, construction machine makers like Caterpillar in the U.S. and and Japan has their has their uh, leading companies as well and European as well. 
ever since the Bell and Road take off, and then all these Bell and Road countries are, are buying Chinese construction machines uh, overwhelmingly uh, at the expense of uh, this, uh, for example, Caterpillar and other uh, European and Japanese construction machines. So this kind of a situation deteriorate for the American companies that they find that they're not only in a kind of a tough competitive uh, situation with uh, the Chinese companies in Chinese market, but also even in the third market in the developing world, in, in, in the Caribbean, Latin America, uh, Central Asia, South Asia, Middle East. Uh, so this kind of, uh, again, the Caterpillar is an interesting example because they are very outspoken and it's well documented openly that at some point and Caterpillar even uh, lobbied the Obama administration to do more aggressively to strike free trade agreements with uh, the developing countries in the Central Latin America, explicitly saying that because without this free trade agreement, we are losing out to our competitor from Asia, particularly China. So the U.S. need to help us with in this market. So this is trigger kind of a very intense or intensifying intercapitalist competition between U.S. corporation and Chinese corporation that totally changed the dynamics uh, of uh, underlying U.S.-China relations. I want to return to U.S.-China relations in a moment, but first, since we're on the subject, I want to talk a little bit more about how this is all playing out across what was once called the third world. To, to what extent is China's massive overseas investment on the one hand, and the demand, the Chinese demand for raw materials provided by African and Latin American countries, to what extent has that provided an alternative to these countries, to the West, that empowers them within the world system? And to what degree does it simply represent a new form of colonialism, this time with a Chinese face? Actually, it is a very complicated question with no simple answer, because as the literature finds out that um, in the developing countries, uh, that this kind of a resource extraction from a more developed countries or investment from a more developed countries, it is not a kind of a simply yes and no in terms of whether it will uh, impede the development of the local uh, economy and become a colonial situation. It depends on whether the, the country, the developing country concerned is reliant on one or multiple uh, external investors or extractors. Uh, what happened, so so the China expansion in the developing world, its impact really vary from country to country. For some country who has a lot of investment from the traditional global law of uh, Europe and US, and at the same time, China is expanding. So their country is better off because that uh, they are courted by multiple powers, uh, trying to becoming the, the new powers that so that they can basically strike the best deal and paying one against the other, uh, paying China against uh, uh, the US or Europe. And it is a situation in many Southeast Asian countries because uh, uh, China's influence and economic inroad has been expanding in their economy. But at the same time, they keep the traditional European and American companies and investments so that uh, they can pay one against the other and get the best deal. Uh, so it's just like the Cold War, that when you're caught by the, both the Soviet Union and the US, that, that you can always get the best deal to, uh, to pay one against the other. Uh, but if you are totally dependent on one side, then it is the problem that like many developing countries that rely totally on, for example, the British or American investment, so they were very exploitative. And uh, on the other hand, if uh, countries become uh, very uh, dependent on Chinese loan and Chinese investment and Chinese uh, company to in mining, they are also the countries that now it, 
now we uh, figure out more and more. It was not clear in uh, ten years ago because the Chinese uh, presence in those places were were new. Um, the, the many long term effect haven't shown up yet. But now that it uh, China in many places are long enough that people start to find the the issues that this kind of a uh, debt dependency and also the traditional problem of uh, uh, of a kind of external. More developed economies came and uh, extract the resources and take the most valuable and profitable parts uh, away to, to 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 make the more the, to process the raw material elsewhere, and then the local economy just uh, like being plundered of the of the raw material without much uh, benefits in return. So it is all this very uh, familiar pattern. Uh, did show up in cases uh, in many Latin American countries and African countries, and so much so that. Uh, uh, it become an electoral uh, winning strategy that uh, you can accuse uh, the opposition can always accuse the the party in power of uh, colluding with uh, the Chinese companies and taking away our resources and and corrupt and then uh, run it on this platform and 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 uh, and then seize power and win election. It happened in Zambia. Uh, it happened back and forth in Sri Lanka, in in Malaysia, and also more recently in in uh, Peru. In the election, the left wing candidates basically want to renegotiate uh, the mining right of the copper mines with foreign company, which is now a large part of it is Chinese companies, and and so. So it is a very uh, China is not particularly inventive in creating this kind of a new colonial uh, situation. Uh, Chinese companies just uh, behaving like other capitalist companies in the global law in the past uh, when they established mining or uh, trading and investment relation with uh, with these developing countries. They just want to maximize their benefits. And from a state perspective, they want to maximize, use this investment to maximize their uh, security interests, geopolitical interests. Uh, so they are just following the footpath of the old uh, global law of powers and neocolonial power and and uh, again, that the effect uh, on the ground in the developing world depends on whether the developing countries in question uh, can keep multiple quarters and, and pay one against the other and get the best deal or they become overly dependent on one supplier of capital. And of course, it also depends on whether the local government in those developing countries, whether they had a strongly institutionalized and state with good capacity to negotiate with all this external capital. One big question you write is, quote, whether China's economic achievement in recent years is an exceptional phenomenon that will not be replicated by others, or whether its achievement is a precursor of similarly rapid growth in other populous developing countries. And there there's sort of two sorts of developing countries to consider here. One, really big countries like India and export-reliant countries in Latin America and Africa, which we were just discussing. It, it seems to me that since China is not transforming the world system and flattening its hierarchies, but instead is intensifying these peripheral countries' reliance on primary good exports, that, that that makes any sort of developmentalist strategy to move up the value chain by copying China impossible for other countries. That is a... Yeah, that is a tricky question because uh, the Chinese model is that uh, to pursue export-oriented industrialization. As I just said, that this kind of model uh, benefits Chinese um, GDP growth. At the same time, China is following the old Four Tigers model in which they incentivize production and export, but repress 
domestic consumption. So in the end, the whole world uh, imbalance between supply and demand and the problem of overproduction actually got worsened with entering of China. So uh, after China rose up as a big supplier of products, all kind of manufactured products, the problem of the lack of demand for of the manufactured products, not the absolute lack, but the relative lack relative to the production capacity get wasn't. So it become more and more difficult for other smaller countries, bigger countries to follow trying to put food path because just just not enough uh, effective demand for continuous expansion of the export production machine. So in some way, that it create difficulties um, for many developing countries. For example, in Latin America, there's already a discussion in Mexico, in Brazil, that uh, they try very hard to industrialize um, their economy, then turn away from the natural re- resource extraction to become uh, manufacturers. But the rise of China basically deindustrialized them. So, uh, for one hand, on the one hand, their domestic uh, market was conquered by Chinese manufacturers, so the domestic industrial uh, establishments are complaining, and of course that Chinese products also uh, conquered a lot of world market uh, uh, in some from cell phone to 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 car and many other things. So they find it much more much less easy to export their manufactured products. So many late industrializing countries, because of the rise of China, became much more difficult to industrialize. Uh, and they even some of them, they call it the industrialized. And for example, in Brazil, there's discussion that whether the country, because of the rise of China, which has a lot of demand for the natural resources and raw materials, but at the same time, uh, putting pressure on the industrial establishment. So they became... The industrialize and go back to raw material commodity export. Uh, so uh, thanks to China's rise. So this China's rise is contradictory. It helped raw material exporters um, like in the aftermath of the 2008 global financial crisis, but it uh, make aspiring industrial powers find it's much more difficult. So in the end, the, the, the rise of gigantic China itself creates uh, more difficulty for other countries to exactly replicate China model. And it's worth pointing out here that the China demand-fueled commodity boom was not a sustainable one for commodity exporters, which became a big problem for the Pink Tide governments in Latin America. As you write, quote, when China's construction boom, boom fizzled out after 2010, its demand for commodities fell, and many commodity exporters, buoyed by the China boom, experienced a slowdown or even recession. The economic crises in Brazil and Venezuela in the 2010s are cases in point. Yeah, exactly. So after 2010s, when the China slowed down and the construction boom ended, demand for global commodity markets also contracted. And, and, and it was one of the origins of the trouble of many Ping Tai government that ride on the commodity boom, and including Russia. Uh, economic crisis uh, that deepening because of the falling commodity price in the 19, uh, 20, 2010s. Uh, so much so that uh, the BRICS, uh, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, later they add South Africa. The BRIC grouping is still there as a global governing institution, but uh, the origin of the BRICS is that the Goldman Sachs uh, create this kind of investment portfolio to lure their investor to put money in the stock market in those uh, BRICS countries. But actually, they folded the portfolio in the 2010s because uh, the stock market of all these BRICS countries is doing so badly and, and their companies are doing so badly, exactly because 
one big uh, reason is that uh, the end of this uh, China's um, investment boom created a huge pressure on these commodities uh, exporter. Returning to U.S.-China relations, they have gotten a lot worse since you published the China boom. The, the relationship from the 1990s on, it always had tensions and there were always worries about the rise of China, but it really didn't reach the obvious level of full-on rivalry until the early 2010s when we saw under Obama the, the 2012 pivot to Asia policy focused on boost, boosting U.S. Navy presence in the South China Sea. We saw the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, that trade agreement, which pointedly excluded China. And by the time Biden took office, you write in your new book, quote, the reservations about and even hostility toward China trade became so mainstream in Washington that even the new Biden administration pledged not to withdraw Trump's China tariffs and to continue pursuing a confrontational policy toward China. But I think it's easy, and you see it a lot, people just simply pointing to the political an ideological divide between the two countries, it doesn't explain much, actually, as you write, because, quote, these ideological and political differences did not prevent the United States and China from pursuing economic integration and geopolitical co- cooperation in the 1990s and 2000s. We therefore need to explain why the U.S.-China symbiosis of the 1990s and 2000s suddenly turned into rivalry in the 2010s, given that the political and economic systems of neither country underwent any fundamental qualitative change. And as you were just alluding to a a few minutes back, your new book, Clash of Empires, argues that the key change that ushered in this massive shift was that U.S. corporations that had previously protected the U.S.-China relationship from criticism and opposition from foreign policy hawks, from organized labor, human rights groups, and, and certain manufacturers, that those corporations began to sour on China because China, as, as we discussed earlier, in the wake of the 2008 economic crisis, began to squeeze U.S. corporations, all while undercutting their business around the world. What was this shield that corporate America provided to U.S.-China relationships from the 1990s through the aughts, and what finally caused U.S. corporations to withdraw that shield? That is very uh, interesting. If we uh, look back to the 1990s, that uh, a lot of this ideological political difference and uh, geopolitical anxiety about China it's not new now that uh, the, the so-called China threat uh, discourse already uh, expanding in the foreign policy circle and national security circle. Uh, the acquisition of all this human rights problem of China definitely was very uh, widespread ever since the 1989 crackdown of the democratic movement. And the interesting thing is that in the 1990s, then in the, the national security circle and the foreign policy, military, and, and they are as concerned about China as today. And you can see that a lot of incidents and, and for example, that this, uh, and also China also uh, showing the ambition to become more and more dominant in the Asia the Pacific region. Now they call it Indo-Pacific. Uh, and then this kind of a territorial dispute and dispute and conflict involving China and its laboring states actually uh, start to surge in the 1990s. 
And in the 1990s, we have a lot of incidents uh, of geopolitical confrontation between uh, China and the U.S. from the uh, Taiwan Strait crisis in 1995, 96, uh, when when China shoots uh, missiles uh, across the Taiwan Strait to try to scare off. Uh, Taiwan people in the first presidential direct election, they see it as a move toward independence. And then the Clinton uh, ordered a kind of air, aircraft carrier group uh, to sail through the Taiwan Straits. And so it's a high tension. And 1999, in the course of a war, that uh, US uh, uh, bomber uh, that destroyed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade and killed a number of uh, Chinese uh, embassy people there. Uh, and it created a huge tension. And of course, in 2001, there was the South China Sea spy plane. So it's all these geopolitical tensions and acquisition of Chinese uh, human rights issue. But back in the 1990s and more so in the 2000s, uh, uh, these kind of uh, geopolitical and human rights concern never became mainstream among the political elite. Uh, so it was only in the national security, military, diplomatic circle. But in terms of the whole government, of the U.S. from from George W. H. Bush to Clinton to George W. Bush, that they were never mainstream. Then the the key issue here is that the U.S. corporations uh, were very very keen to lobby on behalf of China to kill any initiative and any action and any policy and any bills in Congress that uh, no matter whether it is related to economic or geopolitics or human rights, uh, uh, but they will lobby on behalf of the Chinese government to kill those bills. And in return, uh, they, they, they get access to the Chinese market and then they get a uh, Fed contract uh, in a certain uh, protected segments of the Chinese economy. So it is this corporation uh, and, of course, Wall Street and telecommunication companies and, and, and uh, machine makers and all these kind of companies are, are becoming a proxy lobbies of the Chinese government to, to, to track all these kind of uh, dispute on geopolitical and human rights grounds uh, between uh, China and U.S. So it is the 1990s and 2000s. So the, uh, the corporate sectors in the U.S. has been a kind of a key restrainer to prevent the geopolitical and uh, ideological hostility between the U.S. and China from becoming the mainstream. And you write that in the early 90s, U.S. corporations were essentially paid off by China to become proxy lobbyists for these China trade deals by, by promising these corporations these big deals in return. And that that lobbying effort, it was also so successful because Wall Street was ascendant within the Clinton White House. And that that's what led to most favored nation trading status being renewed for China MFN. That was renewed, which was then followed by permanent normal trade relations. And then most consequentially, China's accession to the WTO. Yes, exactly. So so before China uh, got in the WTO, that uh, the, the so-called most favored nation, and later they relame it as a normal trading relation status uh, with China, between China and U.S., need to be renewed annually in the U.S. Uh, by, by the White House and Congress that uh, with this status, then uh, Chinese exports can have a low tariff uh, access to U.S. markets. And interestingly, in 1993, when Clinton just came into office and Clinton laid out a policy to tie this annual renewal of uh, China's uh, goods low tariff access to the U.S. market to human rights conditions. Uh, he said that annually when we renew the China trade status with the U.S., we will also uh, evaluate China human rights progress. If they don't have any progress on key areas, 
we will、uh, raise the tariff on Chinese goods.、Uh, so it is a policy, official policy in 1993. And what we see is that、uh, 1993, 94, there's a massive、uh, lobbying efforts of U.S. corporation,、uh, and at the same time, there's massive lobbying efforts of Chinese government of this、uh, corporation to persuade them to help China to get rid of this human right condition of、uh, Chinese goods low tariff. Access to U.S. market, and in the end,、uh, it was successful.、Uh, and 1994, Clinton、uh, has a 180 degree turn and、uh, suddenly declared that we will no longer, from now on, we will no longer take into consideration the human right condition when we decide whether to renew China's most favorable status to allow Chinese goods to have low tax, low tariff access to U.S. market. And in this、uh, very dramatic. Uh, process in ninety three and ninety four, you even see at that time already the head of the newly created National Economic Council, Robert Rubin, who is from Wall Street and later become the Treasury Secretary.、Uh, he is on the corporate side, and then so、uh, he is a key advocate of taking away the human right condition of China trade, and he openly uh, uh, argue uh, through the media uh, with uh, the State Department. Because the State Department at that time in the Clinton administration, it was staffed by a lot of、uh, people. It was right after the Cold War and the democratization of South Africa and many places. So they are very optimistic to use trade and economic relation as a tool to promote democracy and human rights. So there's a lot of this kind of liberal liberal internationalists like Madeleine Albright. Yes, yes, exactly, liberal internationalists. So they really uh, want to uh, and including at that time in Congress, Nancy、uh, Pelosi. So they. Openly the debate and, and argue with、uh, Robert Rubin, and Robert Rubin is saying that it is not good, and let us take out the human right thing. And then, and then the State Department officials and Nancy Pelosi will openly say that no, we are not taking out that. There's no consideration about that. It is working. And in the end, of course, that uh, uh, Robert Rubin became uh, as, as as you mentioned that it is uh, uh, also uh, related to this、uh, Wall Street influence ascendancy in the administration, get a better voice, and then Clinton in in. Eventually, listen to the, the advice of Robert Rubin rather than the State Departments and 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 in Congress, and to reverse the policy and take away the human right consideration in China trade in '94. You write that it was only quote as an ex post justification that the Clinton administration fomented a theory of constructive engagement, according to which free trade with China could empower China's private enterprises and the middle class, which would in turn push for political liberalization. I mean, this was like the big idea of the 1990s. Is it, is it fair to say, given the history that you tell here, that this liberal internationalist rhetoric defending neoliberal globalization always covered for this more basic and really base Economic motive. Actually, it is that、um, it is a post hoc justification. It actually, I find it very fascinating because it paired out to、uh, today's discussion or debate about sanctions against,、uh, for example, the the Uyghur、uh, labor legislation that、uh, restricted imports from China that used forced labor and things like that. So it is all revival of the debate in the nineteen nineties and in the nineteen nineties, early nineteen nineties. Uh, the liberal internationalists, as you frame them, that、uh, they really think that these sanctions will create incentive. But later, after Wall Street and corporate America won the battle, and then they shift or the the Clinton administration shift to this、uh, theory of constructive engagement that、uh, you don't ask question about human rights, you just do trade with them, and then you will eventually empower the middle class, empower the private enterprise, and this middle class and this private enterprise will eventually do the job. 
of uh, promoting democracy and liberalization, political liberalization in China. So after they shift because of the corporate intensive lobbying and then this uh, theory became dominant uh, for time only actually in the 1990s. In the 1990s, even in the China studies um, literature, among scholars that uh, people really, uh, there's lots short of people who really believe uh, this theory that will, will work eventually. But this is already uh, discredited by reality in the early 2000s and, and late 1990s. And in the China studies circle, even that uh, people already find that first by the late 1990s, uh, they already uh, lose hope about the CCP being liberalizing at all. There's a lot of crackdown of uh, labor unrest uh, and and the religious sects and uh, Tibet and all other kind of issues. But the late 1990s, it already very sure for many people that the Communist Party is not going to uh, loosening up. And in early 2000s, uh, even it uh, led to a slew literature in China studies, actually in political sciences, this to explain China's authoritarian resilience. So there's this literature in the 1990s and this study in the 1990s to ask when and why and how China will eventually liberalize if not collapse like the Soviet Union in the 1990s, give way to the discussion and uh, among foreign policy circle and among scholars in China hands in the early 2000s is that um, why the Chinese authoritarian system actually uh, became so resilient and actually strengthening despite economic liberalization. And there's research after research showing that the middle class and the private entrepreneur uh, in China is not interested in liberalization and democratization. So they are as supportive of the authoritarian communist state uh, as ever. Uh, so this in the early 2000s, that this kind of engagement theory actually died in silence, that uh, it, it became very ridiculous to, to continue to suggest that uh, continuous trade and uh, economic engagement will promote liberalization and opening up in, in China. But they continue to do the trade and investment don't ask uh, human right anyway. So it showed that this kind of engagement theory is really just a kind of a very thin uh, view of uh, justifying corporate interests. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Coup, A Story of Violence and Resistance in Bolivia, by Linda Farthing and Thomas Becker. In three dramatic weeks in October and November 2019, the 14 years of progressive change that Evo Morales' Pink Tide government had worked to implement in Bolivia and beyond came to a screeching halt. Coup offers an indispensable account of the conditions that led to the 2019 coup in Bolivia and details its repressive aftermath, narrating a year of upheaval in Bolivia and providing a critical analysis of the MAS government that preceded it, as well as the MAS return to power in 2020. As Luis Inacio Lula da Silva puts it, this book makes a vital contribution to the struggles of the peoples of the Americas to defend themselves against the coup d'etats that anti-democratic elites of the hemisphere have unleashed again, albeit cloaked in new garments. 
find Koo at haymarketbooks.org. Koo, a story of violence and resistance in Bolivia by Linda Farthing and Thomas Becker. Out now from Haymarket Books. In your book, you argue that the China boom is too firmly enmeshed with the U.S. economy in particular and the U.S. governed world system in general for China to be able to create a rival order. China depends on exports to the U.S., and those exports depend on China buying up U.S. debt so that Americans can spend beyond their means. And also, very importantly, so that the U.S. government can project military power beyond its means. But The incredible sanctions imposed on Russia have revealed that the U.S. is willing to use the power accorded to it by by way of dollar hegemony as a extraordinary geopolitical weapon. Could could this finally spur China to break with U.S. dollar hegemony or is it just basically impossible for them to do so even if they wanted to? Yeah, it is a. Uh, definitely, there's an incentive uh, for China to get away from the dependence on the dollar. Uh, the China, as well as Russia, has been well aware that U.S. is willing to use the dependence on the dollar in the global transaction system to to pressure them on other geopolitical and policy issues. And uh, China uh, did. Uh, have the incentive to promote the use of uh, its own currency, the yuan or the renminbi, in international transaction, uh, so that they they don't need to use the dollar in transaction. Because right now, overwhelmingly, uh, the transaction between China and other countries are settled in the dollars. And and uh, when China buys oil from the Middle East, is settled in dollar. When China exports uh, things to a third countries. To Asia or to Africa, they they the companies charge dollars, and China has been promoting the international use of the yuan. But there's a fundamental contradiction here: is that uh, for currency to become uh, more widely accepted as a form of payment, the currency need to be freely convertible, meaning that whoever get a hold of the currency, they can uh, uh, trade it for other currency easily. Uh, or have uh, invest in different things uh, easily, uh, but the problem is that uh, the uh, Chinese currency is not yet fully convertible because the Communist Party is very very reluctant to open up its financial market and financial system. That uh, they see this kind of opening up of financial system to allow the freely convertibility of their currency will lead to speculative flow of hot money in and out. And then China will be very vulnerable to this international financial speculator. So they are right about it, and they're not wrong. And they're not wrong about that. They're not wrong about it. They're right about it. Uh, so they are very. This the last thing that China want to open up is this financial system. So it's why it is so. Foreign bank cannot doing the uh, trading of the currencies of China freely, and then uh, if you earn money in China, it is very difficult to take it out, and with a lot of penalty and regulations against it. So so far as the currency is not freely convertible, so it is really the kind of a deal breaker for whoever want to settle their trade in the dollar, uh, in in the yuan in the Chinese currency. For example, when when uh, during the Chavez uh, government, China is uh, offering loan uh, for oil uh, to Venezuela, and initially, and China offered to lend the yuan. 
the Chinese currency to to Chavaz, and Chavaz say that if you lend in your own currencies, I'm not taking the loan. I I I go for traditional uh, borrower uh, lender. In the end, China has to shift to uh, lend the money to the U.S. dollar. Uh, so that the travelers uh, accept the loan because if we, with the U.S. dollar in hand, you can use to buy all kind of things from different countries and do all kind of thing and and investment and 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 currency trading. But with the renminbi, that that basically you cannot use it for to do anything other than like buying stuff from China. That uh, so it is less flexible. So this kind of a fundamental contradiction between the urge to internationalize the yuan. To reduce dependence on the dollar and the very grave concern of the Communist Party in controlling the financial system, so not to make the yuan convertible, make this kind of a plan of using the yuan to, to replace the dollar uh, very very difficult. Uh, so the happy medium that China has been pursuing so far is to use euro actually. So as data show that that uh, Russia-China trade has been de-dollarized in the last ten years, ever since the Crimea uh, crisis and Ukraine crisis in two thousand fourteen, and but the data show that they are not shifting to settle their trade in ruble or yuan, but eighty uh, percent of the trade between U.S. and uh, China and Russia has been settled in the euros. And so this kind of a use of euro as a replacement of the dollar is the definitely both Russia and China has assumption. That there's a huge wedge between U.S. and Europe.、Um, so exactly, by the way, it is also the not any not anymore. Not anymore. That so so this Ukraine crisis is、uh, caught them by surprise. That actually U.S. and Europe actually、uh, now come back together in unison.、Uh, so the assumption is no longer true. And actually, this is also the assumption of Saddam Hussein. And in the late 1990s and early 2000s, is one. Background of the second Iraq invasion is that、uh, when the euro was being bonded、uh, in the at the turn of the twenty first century in early two thousands, Saddam Hussein basically has a has an agreement or deal or understanding with the French and the German that if they help、uh, Saddam Hussein to break the UN、uh, embargo, then the, they promise that they will denominate the export of their oil if the oil can flow. And export in the world market again, not in the U.S. dollar, but in euro. So it is a great threat to the U.S. dollar hegemony at the time, and some people even go as far as arguing that it is one underlying reason why the new conservative think Saddam Hussein is a threat because it will destabilize the oil market and make euro the kind of alternative currency for the dollar. So this Saddam Hussein and Russia and China always assume that they can drive away. Between Europe and the U.S., so to de-dollarize, they don't necessarily need to internationalize their own currency, but just shift to euro. But now the, we are in a different world. Now it, this assumption no longer holds. China and Russia, of course, occupy very different places in the global economy, and it seems clear that this constrains China from pursuing anything like the autarkic strategy to protect itself in the way that Russia had tried to do ahead of the invasion. Though Russia's ability to insulate itself. Is coming up obviously against very hard limits, given the surprising severity of the sanctions. But on the other hand, would China's place in the global economy also constrain the U.S. in applying the sort of geoeconomic power accorded to it by the dollar hegemony to punish China in the way that it is currently punishing Russia? Because punishing Russia in this way has already created extraordinary economic blowback. Doing this to China seems like it could be just 
catastrophic for the globe. Definitely, that uh, the China-U.S. economic linkage is much deeper and much more extensive than the Russia-U.S. even Russia-Europe uh, linkage, uh, and it is on on both ways. So it is why even if within China that there is a debate, and in the fall this year there will be a party congress to to seal the deal about Xi Jinping serving another term, and you already see some establishment elite within China also having different voices about whether this. Uh, Aggressive uh, rhetorics and uh, stands uh, to confront the U.S. is is need to be readjusted because on the one hand that it is unimaginable if U.S. like uh, do a sanction on China like they are doing on Russia they can stop importing Russian oil that gas and which is like less than five percent of U.S. import but U.S. cannot totally shut down all China's uh, export uh, to the U.S. because uh, everything. Many things are relying on, on on Chinese supply. At the same time, China is very much intermeshed and with the global economy. That is, export sector is still driving force of the economy. The foreign exchange reserve created is the is the foundation of the local currency loan that they use to drive the investment and constructions and things like that. So. It is a kind of a mutually assured uh, destruction situation. That of course, that the Xi Jinping has been throwing around this concept of internal circulation. That uh, China need to be more emphasizing on the internal circulation uh, rather than just only focus on the external circulation. So it is the language of advocating decoupling. Actually, that of course in the U.S. there's a lot of talk about decoupling and at least to reshoring some of the strategic uh, industries back to the U.S. and Manufacturing, and in the, in the China also that uh, there's a certain tendency to emphasize this decoupling might be good, and there's of course there's a push and pull, and then there's the opposite forces and think that is not a good idea. That China, if it really want to decouple from the U.S., that it will become a kind of a gigantic uh, North Korea. It is very difficult and painful to do, and uh, without hurting. Uh, a lot of elite interests and popular interests, and then and and nobody will be willing to absorb the social and political uh, risk and consequence of doing so. So in both U.S. and China side, there is a, a countervailing force to the track the decoupling, but the competition is real, and then the rivalry is real. It is uh, again that I like. Uh, always like to point out the parallel and striking parallel. The more I read into it, the more I think it is parallel between the Germany and the United Kingdoms uh, on the eve of the First World War in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. That they are increasingly competitive in terms of their business and finance, and they become increasingly rival in terms of their geopolitical posture. But yet they are still very interlinked economically, even socially, that their royalty and their aristocrat intermarry one another. There's a mutual investment and trade and, and but yet that this uh pulls and pull in the end uh moved toward the uh, off balance and became impetus of uh, this world war. But uh we are not yet at that tipping point, but uh, I see a lot of uh Uh, similar dynamics and tensions and forces at play in U.S.-China relation now, very similar to the U.K.-German uh, relation uh, a, a century earlier. How concretely could the relationship move from rivalry to war? I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, first, that China is exporting capital and competing with. Uh, 
U.S. capital in the third market in the Belt and Road country. But at the same time, you see that uh, China right now are uh, confronting all these kind of issues of capital export. That is, you export capital to a, a faraway place, and then you you need to protect the investment, and then so you need to also project your political or even military power to protect your investment in those faraway places. Uh, and China is exporting capital. They are facing increasing geopolitical risks, uh, risks of changing government, the risks of uh, bandits and terrorists. And actually, interestingly, in Pakistan and in Africa, there's a, a security company report showing that actually the Chinese personnel and Chinese uh, facilities are becoming a number one target of uh, local uh, bandits and local rebel groups and local terrorists and, and Eric and, Prince to the rescue. Yeah, Eric Prince to the rescue. <laughs> and and the China solution now you can see that China is very restrained in the sense that they don't want to do an outright military political uh, projection. They hire Eric Prince, who is the, the former owner of the Backwaters, notorious mercenary organization in Iraq war for working for the U.S. After he got into big trouble with the U.S., now he's in Hong Kong and running a company as a subsidiary company of a Chinese state-owned enterprise uh, to provide security service to Chinese uh, companies and personnel in the Belt and Road countries. So China is using the mercenary solution. So it is an indication that China, unlike earlier imperial power or Leo imperial, Leo colonial power, which is a uh, lot shy from explicitly exporting military uh, power, China is more cautious in, in exercising its uh, projection of military power. But of, of course, there's people point out that there's a sign that China want to have foreign base, uh, uh, foreign uh, the, the PLA, the People Liberation Army, stationing in, in, in foreign ports and like Djibouti and yeah, that all this kind of place. But it is still, uh, in comparison, it's still uh, very tiny compared to, for example, Russia. Russia can go all the way to Syria to paratroopers and, and bomber and all these uh, foreign interventions. So China, and compared to uh, the 100 years ago, Germany, for example, is much less mid- militaristic. Of course, it's mili- militaristic and, and draconian and don't have a soft hand internally, but externally that they are more shrine from employing this uh, militaristic policy and solution. Uh, so this kind of uh, geopolitical rivalry between China and the U.S. Uh, relatively is less dangerous than the kind of a very militaristic Germany uh, and equally militaristic U.K. in the early 20th century. So one possibility is that the China-U.S. competition will be restrained. In, and, and nowadays we have all these multilateral uh, global governing situa- institutions from the WTO, WHO and UN and all these organizations. So there's a possibility that this geopolitical rivalry will be translated not into direct military confrontation, but into this competition. It can be malicious competition, but less lethal. Uh, we already see that over the, the struggle over the WHO during the pandemic and also all these kind of uh, committees and Security Council in the UN and WTO. And, and so it is well possible this geopolitical rivalry can be translated into a more or less lethal uh, way of competition through this organization. But it is maybe my wishful thinking. What about more specifically the conflict and rivalry in Asia? You write that beginning during the 7th through 10th century, during the Tang Dynasty, that this Sinocentric order prevailed across Asia, even though, of course, what the Chinese, who was running the Chinese empire 
changed pretty dramatically over the centuries. But that was briefly challenged by the Japanese Empire's attempt to build a Japan-centered Asian order. And then that was replaced after World War II by the U.S.-dominated Cold War order. Is China currently aiming to revive something like that Sinocentric Asian order? And if so, how does U.S. dominance, which is ironically, of course, as we've discussed, financed by China, how does that impact China's regional ambitions, particularly now that the entire West has united against Russia, which puts China in what seems like an incredibly uncomfortable position? That actually, this is an interesting point because uh, before the Ukraine war, uh, most recently, that uh, China did uh, see a parallel between the China situation and the Russia situation, and it is very uh, explicitly expressed that in the February fourth joint statement between Putin and Xi Jinping during the summit during the Winter Olympic opening, they they issue a joint statement saying that uh, China uh, support Russia's opposition to NATO's uh, presence in the former Soviet state. At the same time, Russia also support China's opposition to the formation of national security or security uh, alliance and and arrangement in the Asia-Pacific, explicitly the Quad, uh, the, the four countries, including the US, Japan, India, and Australia, and of course, and also the UA, AUKUS, uh, the America, UK, and Australia, UK, and US. Uh, so it is this security arrangement. And of course, that the, the contentious issue is about Taiwan and South China Sea and, and all these uh, the Southeast Asian countries who, are, who have territorial dispute with China. And under the Cold War, these states are all client state of the U.S. empire. But in the last 10, 20 years, then China definitely trying to uh, expand not only their economic uh, influence, but also political influence in all these uh, states, and including uh, Cambodia is, is the one in which China has the uh, longest, deepest relation and politically the most uh, friendly with China and there's uh, Chinese expansion of influence in, in further abroad is uh, Sri Lanka and Nepal because Nepal has the Maoists that traditionally and historically lengthened the China government and even the lone Maoist politicians want to use China influence to to cancel out the Indian influence to maintain more autonomy of the country. So you already see that China has been trying to expand the political influence among these smaller states uh, in in Asia, they are the, the historical, the triple vessel of the Chinese old Chinese Empire. So you already see this coming and and emerging. But right now, uh, in twenty first century, the situation is very different from uh, the early modern times or the Cold War times uh, when the, uh, these smaller states will accept their status as a kind of a triple state uh, of a bigger states or bigger empires. Now, nationalism is in the air everywhere, from uh, Ukraine to Taiwan to Malaysia to all these kind of smaller states. They want to be having self-determination and independence. And one way to do it is actually to play these big powers one against the other to maintain a balance. So it is what these kind of uh, smaller states have been doing. Our analysis often uh, dictated by this uh, too much focus on big powers, big empires, the dynamics between empires without uh, paying enough attention 
to these smaller states, and it is it is shown in the Ukraine crisis again that uh, nobody expect Ukraine can have put up a fierce resistance, and even I think Biden when he offered Zelensky uh, a way out, and they I think they assumed that it will fall very rapidly. And then the best U.S. can do is to to, to pro- provide refuge with all these people who be going to be in exile. But then then the, the Ukrainian military and nationalist uh, resolution to defend their country is very very surprised everyone. And the same thing in in Asia that uh, you see this smaller state is very very conscious. They don't want to be a triple vessel to either China or the U.S. And so they are very developing a very dedicated dance or strategies to balance one against the other and to maximize their their sovereignty. And and you can see that like Philippines is a good example. Philippine Duterte became a president as an anti-American populist president and tried to pivot toward China and break the ties or severe the ties with the U.S. in terms of military and trade and everything. But later on, now he's on the way out. He is pivoted more back to the U.S. when he feel the heat and the pressure from China over self-trinity and all other kinds of issues. So the, this smaller state and weaker states, and and is really the, we see that this kind of nationalist determination to have self-determination and defend the sovereignty is really the, driving the geopolitics uh, more than 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 the dynamics and the. The preference and and the resolution of the big empires, and again that uh, what you can you can tell that the situation will be very different if the Ukrainian uh, people and the army is not putting up a fight and surrender and and Ukraine fall rapidly, and and we are not going to talk about a lot of this implication of the Ukraine crisis to Asia now. Now uh, Xi Jinping definitely is watching it carefully. And and this we really need to pay more attention to this uh, agency of these smaller states uh, that is squeezed between empires. You argue that the most durable solution to the U.S.-China rivalry and what will be required to prevent conflict is both the U.S. and China engaging in massive economic redistribution at home. Why? Yes, definitely. For for the part of the of the China, definitely, that uh, one source of uh, conflict is this kind of uh, Chinese companies, private, well, politically connected as their own company. They have the problem of profitability, falling profits and overcapacity, excessive capacity, uh, so that they lead to survive and uh, revive the profit by squeezing other corporations and in the home market or in overseas market. So it is not inevitable. Uh, it is not a necessity or inevitable that they have to do it. If uh, the Chinese government, for example, in two thousand eight, uh, pick another round of stimulus, that is the stimulus domestic demand, so that the demand will uh, expand again. If the demand ex- uh, mass market expand again, then the pie will grow again, and then the companies don't need to squeeze one another, don't need to squeeze foreign company to grow and revive profit. And then the Chinese company urge to export their capital overseas to look for new spheres of influence and, and new source of profit will be significantly reduced. And then the conflict and competition between companies from different countries will be reduced. Um, so this kind of a route of um, reviving the economy and reviving profitability through a more Keynesian uh, income lower income boosting strategy uh, is one solution to reduce conflict. And the same on the side of the U.S., again, that U.S., as in many other developed countries, they have this urge to export capital to China 
to other places to the developing world and and so that they are in the situation of competing with Chinese corporation competing in in Chinese market in other markets is a result uh, as I said earlier and in the tribe of the long crisis in the 1970s of falling profits and falling uh, productivity and it has something to do with the vast inequality and the lack of effective demand relative to the productive capacity that lead to this American capital urge to export to compete with Chinese company in the Chinese market and in other developing countries market. Again, that if uh, there is a, a significant redistribution going on in the U.S., and then this uh, U.S. company can uh, revive the profit at home uh, rather than going out all around the world uh, in China and other developing countries to compete with Chinese companies. And, and I'm not saying that they won't go out. They still will go out, but the urge and the significance will be lowered. Uh, they, they will be more focused on domestic market. Uh, but again, that the domestic market uh, need to be boosted through income redistribution. Ultimate problem in both China and in U.S. is uh, the lack of um, the growth in household income relative to the GDP. Uh, the GDP is growing fast, the household income is growing, but the household income is growing much slower than the GDP and productive capacity. So it's why it's not like in the 50s and 60s. You look at the curve, household income actually grow at the same pace as GDP and productive capacity in the Keynes, in the golden age of Keynesianism. But now, no longer. So we are in this kind of situation of perpetual excess capacity and then capital lead to export to find new source of profits around the world and clash with one another and lead to this geopolitical rivalry. Most listeners will be very, very familiar with the obstacles to redistribution here in the U.S., but what are the obstacles to this in in China? And has China already begun to at least try to undertake this sort of shift with Xi's so-called common prosperity agenda that that was initiated after that almost full-blown financial crisis back in 2015? The common prosperity slogan need to be taken with a lot, a, a lot of a grain of salt uh, because everyone's in the wild since the 1990s that the Chinese leadership did talk about the lead of redistribution to create domestic consumption demand so that China can be less reliant on foreign demand and foreign markets and thing and thing. Then, then they have different slogans in different periods. From developing the West, meaning the West interior in China, uh, which is underdeveloped, uh, to the critique of uncoordinated imbalanced uh, economy uh, by the Premier Wen Jiabao uh, 10, 20 years ago. So they, every once in a while, they, they have this reckoning about the necessity of uh, redistribution, but every time it becomes only slogan and uh, nothing has been done and it in the end, has a lot to do with this kind of uh, institutionalized vested interest in the party states that are industries and developers. They are institutionally represented in the political system, while peasants or or laborers and workers are not um, sufficiently represented in the system, and and uh, they don't have independent organized peasants uh, organizations or labor organizations. So even though at the higher up. They have this uh, good idea about redistribution, but the institution of interest will prevent it from doing it. Just like the talk about uh, reducing coal capacity, coal power capacity. So they, they, they are very low, global uh, slogan about it. But again, the vested interest of the coal plant and the province that depend on coal 
uh, become so strong that it, it make it very difficult to 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 move away as advertised. And U.S. is the democratic system, uh, but this kind of a vast interest uh, capture of the political process is similar. That even though the Democrats want to transform the economy, greening the economy, but this kind of a cold uh, areas and cold dependent area, West Virginia, whatever they they have a whole. The interest as a whole on the system to make the transition much slower than it should have been. So this is the different political system, but in this regard of uh, in the regard of facilitating redistribution, it is easier uh, saying it than actually getting it done. Uh, so this common prosperity slogan is yet another attempt to talk about the significance of redistribution that we have been seeing recurrently over the last 20-30 years, but uh, it is very well possible that it will end up like the previous round, that is a slogan and not much is accomplished uh, in the end. So we will need to see what is actually done. Speaking of coal, what, what about U.S.-China climate cooperation? Is that possible, given how bad the relationship has gotten? John, John Kerry, the U.S. climate envoy, has said that he's going to make climate a separate track from everything else. But I don't see how that works. It depends on what what exactly we are talking about. Definitely, as many data show that China is already the, the world-leading producer of uh, solar panel, wind turbine. And uh, in that regard, that uh, definitely there's the incentive for the U.S. to increase the import uh, of this kind of a China-made uh, green products and but uh, what is uh, complicating the issue is that one reason of corporate US corporate complaint about China is that this early on during the Obama administration uh, I I have an example uh, mentioned in the, the Clash of Empire book is that this uh, green technology company they were in the lead but then they collaborate with the Chinese company they pro- uh, the US company provide the high tech components and their software and then China uh, build the wind turbine, and later on that they find that the Chinese partners is uh, actually it is a it is a court case, and it is confirmed that and 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 the Chinese uh, companies uh, did concede that the wrongdoing and and pay a huge fine for that. That they they hire somebody within the American company to appropriate all these uh, patents and design and technology, so that China can build the wind turbine without the the high tech components and the software provided by the American company. So it is uh, happening a lot in this uh, green high-tech sector. Uh, so it is another countervailing force and saying that if uh, we want to cooperate with China in green technology and importing more China green product, but at the same time, American green corporations are being hurt by this uh, intellectual property appropriation that actually helped precipitate the trade war in the first place. So it will complicate. It's very difficult to 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 really disentangle the, the green cooperation and other issues like uh, intellectual property disputes and, and, and trade uh, war. And on the other hand, that again, that China is uh, rolling out green technology-based products and wind turbine and solar panels uh, impressively. But at the same time, the China coal sector is also expanding and exporting coal capacity to the Belt and Road countries. So it is what um, people notice, even though that uh, Xi Jinping has been saying that China will stop uh, exporting coal plant and financing coal plant, but data data to show that this uh, continue. And again, it will take some time for people to realize that whether they really mean it or just saying it without doing it. So this 
China has a green technology sector that、uh, become part of the West interest to buy to to buy for government support for the expansion. But at the same time, the old sectors, the the coal sector in particular, is also a huge politically very powerful. A vested interest that has a hold on the political process. So, in 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 terms of、uh, China's transitioning to a more green、uh, economy, that it really will lead to break this kind of a、uh, uh, political hold of this vested interest. It is again that this kind of a green cooperation between China and U.S. is、uh, it should happen. It should be supported, but、uh, it is very difficult to be disentangled by this with from these、uh, issues of、uh, protectionism, trade dispute, and intellectual property dispute, and also the vested interest control of the political system of both sides. There are two final key topics I want to cover before we finish: Hong Kong and the pandemic. First, Hong Kong. Hong Kong historically played a major role as this intermediary. Financial in between point between China and the rest of the global capitalist economy, and so I think for most casual observers, what's most notable is that there was previously all of this political freedom in Hong Kong, and that those political freedoms have recently been eliminated or severely reduced. But there was also this related but distinct economic dimension to Hong Kong's special status. What what has the recent crackdown and extension of Beijing's control over Hong Kong? Meant for Hong Kong's economic position, and also as a result, what has it meant for the entire Chinese economy? Sure, that is a big topic. I have to answer in a very condensed way because I have another book which is three hundred pages about this finance, geopolitics, <laughs> and protests in Hong Kong. So China has been facing a dilemma over Hong Kong ever since the sovereignty handover in nineteen ninety seven. Because on the one hand, China. Uh, want Hong Kong to be offshore financial center to resolve China's own contradiction of its lead to connect to the global financial system, but its political imperative of、uh, shielding the Chinese financial system from global high finance, as we discussed earlier, that、uh, CCP want to have full control of the financial system, but yet Chinese company and Chinese entity lead financial service and financial pumping all kind of、uh, connection. With the global finance, so the the solution is、uh, developing Hong Kong as an offshore financial market. So it is part of China, but at the same time,、uh, it has its own currency. It has its own、uh, central bank. Its government supposedly、uh, make financial economic policy on its own without、uh, Beijing dictation, and there's a、uh, permeable but regulatable and、uh, adjustable、uh, financial border. Over capital flow between mainland China and Hong Kong, so this kind of、uh, uh, developing Hong Kong is an offshore market、uh, seems to resolve uh, China's um, the contradiction between China's lead to use、uh, to connect to the global financial system and its political lead to shield the Chinese、uh, financial market from global finance. That、uh, Chinese company just. Go to be listed in Hong Kong stock market and then buy the financial product in Hong Kong rather than do it in the mainland China. But to maintain an offshore financial market, you need a separate,、uh, internationally recognized、uh, legal system, and also free flow of free、uh, flow of information. It is very important. Facebook and all these social media, Western social media, is banned in China. Google is banned in China. There's low free press in China, but in Hong Kong, up to very recently, they do have a free press, so they can find out all this、uh, corporate wrongdoing, corruption, 
uh, and they have social media. So it is very important to maintain a for maintaining a uh, offshore financial center that people do business. But at the same time, this kind of uh, uh, relative uh, freedom, liberty, rule of law in Hong Kong necessary for offshore financial market that serve Chinese uh, economy very well, create a space for opposition and political dissidents that trouble China. So it is uh, China called use Hong Kong to solve the contradiction between its imperative to get connected to the global financial system and its political imperative to not opening its financial system for Hong Kong. But at the same time, we create a real contradiction between the necessity to maintain certain freedom, political freedom and rule of law in Hong Kong and uh, the creation of a kind of opposition, uh, political opposition in Hong Kong that make China increasingly uncomfortable. So the uh, result is a showdown in 2019 and the crackdown in 2020. Uh, so it is uh, Hong Kong in a kind of uh, uncharted territory now that the China's uh, Xi Jinping ideal situation is that they crack down on the political dissident and could uh, destroy the free press and, and everything else, uh, but to maintain the financial freedom. But whether you can maintain the financial confidence in the offshore market and uh, without uh, political freedom is very difficult uh, because now we already see not only because of the pandemic but also because of um, before the pandemic that a lot of uh, private equity company even with a mainland Chinese background and Chinese tycoons in Hong Kong and some uh, international business in Hong Kong are starting to move away from Hong Kong to Singapore, actually. Singapore is not a democracy, but it is uh, separate from mainland China enough that they don't need to worry about the government bias towards uh, the Chinese government against them. But definitely after the crackdown in Hong Kong, uh, many financial firms are still watching how bad the situation will get, but many people already uh, in the financial sector already prepare for the worst. And at, it is shown in the, the pandemic, the containment of the pandemic, it become a political politicized, which method to, to control the virus become a debate between different camps and the government accused uh, uh, some medical doctor and public health expert for to trust the Western vaccine and the Western uh, principle of living with the virus and, and saying that they need to do this kind of a draconian lockdown approach, which uh, is the correct approach and it uh, shows the superiority of the Chinese system. So it everything gets politicized and we, without the check and balance of a free press, then this kind of uh, lack of um, freedom not only affect the dissidents, but eventually will affect the other areas of governance uh, from healthcare, public health to financial regulation. We already see uh, examples of foreign financial analysts uh, disclosing corruption and wrongdoing of uh, powerful Chinese corporations a few years ago were being sanctioned by the China, uh, Hong Kong authorities. And it turned out that that uh, financial analyst, the, the, the company that he's disclosing, about corruption about is the Evergrande, uh, which is the much troubled uh, Chinese developer now. But a few years ago, that financial analyst got silenced because of criticizing Evergrande. And many people assume that it is politically motivated. So this kind of situation is really worrying a lot of uh, financiers. So they, uh, many of them are thinking about leaving Hong Kong, a lot to some place closer to mainland China and the Chinese authority, but somewhere farther away like Singapore, 
and London, and in that case, that it will be quite the collateral damage to the Chinese economy because、uh, up to now, that China has this offshore financial center within Chinese sovereignty, but if this offshore financial center move or disperse to other places outside of Chinese sovereignty. So it would be the, a negative, a net negative on the Chinese economic lead. Finally, how has China's experience managing and experiencing this pandemic impacted the state's domestic legitimacy on the one hand, and then its position and legitimacy within the world system on the other? Because, because China has of course generated a lot of ill will overseas, but in pointed contrast to the West. It probably saved millions of lives at home as well. Meanwhile, its trade grew, I think, about five times faster than the global average over the past three years. But then again, right now, Omicron is ripping through China, where a shockingly large portion of its elderly population is unvaccinated, and we have lockdowns shutting down key production, export production regions. Yeah, so it is a roller coaster that、uh, over the last two years, initially when the disease、uh, broke out in Wuhan in China, the conversation is about how China cover up led to the creation of this pandemic in the first place, and and that、uh, people in China unhappy about the cover up, and and people in Wuhan is suffering, and the world is、uh, looking at China as a kind of authoritarian countries that because of this cover up create a global crisis. And then conversation, of course, shifted very rapidly after the virus reached the shore of U.S. and Europe and create a, a kind of a situation in which the the incompetence of the、uh, incumbent government is fully exposed. At the same time, China mobilized its、uh, very draconian state machinery to do a kind of a lockdown of whole regions, millions of people, and 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 rapidly cut off the chain of transmission of the virus. So. In in late twenty twenty, uh, in in uh, late twenty 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 early twenty twenty one, it seems that China became the kind of a successful case to control the virus, and then the Western countries become a failure case, and 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 trying to boosting the model of controlling the virus definitely. But 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 very soon when the vaccine came into. The picture it become another shift the tire of the conversation because、uh, the mRNA vaccines、uh, created and invented by Western countries became quite effective and China is struggling to come up with the m their version own version of mRNA vaccine and then they created this uh, uh, Sinovac and Sinopharm、uh, which is traditional kind of vaccine which is less effective and. And then, and then in this Omicron wave, that we clearly see this kind of a limit of this uh, uh, lockdown approach because it is much more contagious, and the Chinese vaccines is、uh, research show that is less effective in shielding or preventing serious illness than the mRNA vaccine. So that now the conversation is that whether China can continue this kind of a draconian lockdown approach.、Um, And、uh, people already noticed that Xi Jinping himself is shifting the tone,、uh, emphasizing a lot to inflict too much economic costs on the economy. And it seems that some people will guess that China is、uh, might be silently and slowly moving away from this、uh, draconian lockdown approach. But still early to tell. And of course, right now the perception is that it seems that U.S. and Europe and Other Asian countries, from Singapore to、uh, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan is coming out. Not not Lexus, actually not Taiwan, but、uh, most most countries 
are coming out from the virus uh, pandemic through these um, mRNA vaccines, and while China is stuck in this kind of draconian lockdown with a heavy economic price to pay, so while they're still struggling to develop their version of mRNA vaccine, vaccine. so this kind of a、uh, which is doing better, who is doing better, and、uh, lead to this legitimacy question globally and domestically is still shifting. But definitely, that、uh, the deterioration of relation between U.S. and actually the rest of the world with 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 China, because of the pandemic, is very true and certain. Because uh, it, uh, no matter how well China did in containing the vaccine,、uh, containing the virus in the middle of the pandemic, it still cannot. Uh, get rid of、uh, people's perception that China is not cooperating in the international the WHO investigation about the origins of the virus, and China still hiding a lot of information and data, and it's impeding international scientific investigation into the origins. And uh, and uh, China early cover up is still a problem that people would argue、uh, reasonably that if China had admit. Knowledge about the existence of the virus earlier, then then maybe a global pandemic would not have uh, uh, erupted in the first place. It can be well contained right in China in Wuhan. So this is this this kind of a pandemic is going to have a kind of a, a long lasting impact on the global governance and、uh, U.S. China relation and China relation with the world to be sure. Well, Ho Feng Hung, thank you so much for all your time. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. That was part two of my two-part interview with Ho Feng Hung, a professor in political economy at the Johns Hopkins University. He is the author of Protest with Chinese Characteristics, The China Boom, City on the Edge, Hong Kong Under Chinese Rule, and Out Just Now, Clash of Empires. From Chimerica to the New Cold War, his writings also appear in Catalyst, Jacobin, New Left Review, and Specter. Thank you for listening to the Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that if the emancipation of the working classes requires their fraternal concurrence, how are they to fulfill that great mission with a foreign policy in pursuit of criminal designs, playing upon national prejudices, and squandering in piratical wars the people's blood and treasure? While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews and ratings help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling other people that you know in real life or online that you like the show, why they'll like the show. Please make propaganda for us, and do find us at Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. <laughs>